Okay. Oh, Mr. Cole? Yes, sir. You up for prayer? Yes, sir. All right. Mr. Cole, I'm going to pray. <laughs> Father God, we thank you that you love us so much that even the smallest things that concern us, you hear and you answer our prayers. And, and our heart, my heart goes out to you, and we thank you so much for being such a loving and wonderful God to us. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness and your love. We thank you for being here with us, Lord Jesus. We thank you for what you've accomplished for us uh, that not, no one else could do but you, and you are willing to do it, and we, we are so grateful to you. We love you, Lord, and uh, we love you, Father God, and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So we're in Hebrews 7, and this sharing I've entitled, A New Covenant, New Priesthood. That is it in a nutshell. We're done. Let's see. Um, <laughs> even as we started, I just contemplating how word order has uh, supreme importance. So, um, you can have an overwhelming day or a day of being overwhelmed. And they're not, they're not the same thing. That's right. You know? Um, you can have a day assault you or you can just be full all day long. And so I, I decided I, I haven't had an overwhelming day. I've had a day of being overwhelmed. <laughs> in a good way? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you. In, in, a, in a very good way. Um, you can, we can be overwhelmed on the other side, too. Yeah. So we are going to begin to look at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. But before we jump in there, I thought we could take two steps back and just get a running charge as to how we got here, okay? So, we were all the way back in Hebrews 5, verses 8 through 10, and talking about the Son, that although He was a Son, Jesus, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became a source, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so... Here is this introduction of Jesus Christ as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, all the way back in chapter 5, verse 10. And that, you remember we talked about him being the source of eternal salvation and how it's not incorrect to think of our salvation as having come to Christ at a particular point in time, but that that wasn't the end of it, that he is the source of eternal salvation, that we move from uh, faith to faith and glory to glory, and that Jesus is the source of continually making us whole, right, after the order of Melchizedek. And so, there you are in chapter 5, verse 10, and then you hit, hey Bill, and then you hit verse 11. About, about this we have much to say. So the writer of Hebrews says, regarding Jesus... Being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, we have a lot to talk about. So basically, the letter opens, and, and in our divisions, he spends four and a half chapters of this letter to the Hebrews, warming up to the subject of the Melchizedek and priesthood. 
And then he says, I have a whole lot of things to share about this, which is essentially the remainder of the epistle. What, what the epistle is really about. And so, I got a whole bunch to say. And it's hard to explain. Not because it's a real difficult thing to get your head around. It was hard to explain because they weren't hearing it. They weren't going to hear it. This remains our struggle. We don't want to hear it. We want to continue somehow and in some form and in some fashion recapture the solid, tangible trappings of legalism. Not covenant, but legalism. We want to somehow rebuild the temple. We want to somehow reinstitute a priesthood. We want to somehow have ordinances and laws and specifics and, and just give me the round peg and the round hole and let me put it in there and I can check it off and know I'm okay with God. And so we... we Christ being a priest after the order of Melchizedek is as revolutionary, as earth-shattering, as um, awe-inspiring as someone who has not been circumcised receiving eternal life. If you replace physical circumcision and you replace the priesthood after Aaron, you have dramatically overhauled the entire tangible economy of God. We're not talking about an abandonment of Judaism. We're talking about the fulfillment of legalism into the entrance of the holiest of all through the ripped veil that Christ made available. But this is how revolutionary this is. This is why we have so much to say. Because everything that follows from here is completely expanding, heart expanding, mind expanding, spirit expanding, relationship expanding. It, it is a stretch of, of everything to pull our perspective from some sort of a simple ritualistic do and don't list to the living, growing, blessing reality of Christ who intercedes for you in the power of an endless life, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I've got a lot to say about this. And then the writer, it's like he goes, look, I have a whole lot of things to say about this, but... He takes a deep breath, and boom, he comes in right into this third warning of the book of Hebrews. So he, he finally comes up to the, to the prime subject he's going to talk about. And then he takes a pause, and he lays out in his letter to this congregation 
this third warning, which is the essence of Hebrews 5, verse, 1, verse 11, through Hebrews 6, verse 20. Okay? Well, we just went over that section of Scripture in eight sharings. We only spent um, two months of our congregational time just to take a peek at the interruption between all the things he had to talk about with regard. <laughs> to Melchizedek. It's pretty neat. I mean, wow. So Wes, Wesley got the point. <laughs> like, that, that little eruption was a lot. What's coming next is a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot, and and so that's so therein lies the, the um, the day of being overwhelmed, and so now the writer of this epistle is getting ready to make this shift into the subject he really wants to expound upon, um, which is. Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 3. Now we start to wade into the water full force. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. <laughs> this is exciting. This is three verses, right? Right off the bat, the big demarcation point is that Melchizedek is a king priest. Melchizedek, king of Salem, is the priest of the Most High God. He's the king priest. Well, why is that important? Um, you remember the, the, the Uzziah incident? <laughs> I like the title of this slide because it Makes me think of one of those thriller books, or <laughs> the Uzziah incident. Is that the one that reached out to study the ark? No. Let's go there. It's, uh, um, it's Second Chronicles, chapter twenty-six. And uh, Uzziah, I believe this is the same king. You know Isaiah. You know that great section in Isaiah chapter six where. Um, he was in the temple, you know, and, and uh, the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was one of the good ones. He was one of the ones that, you know, held fast to the Lord and God blessed him. And, and um, so, but the, the cool thing about Scripture is, do you know what a hagiography is? It's a fancy word for a nice and shiny biography. So when you, when you do a biography of someone, 
um, you uh, sanctify them, right? Uh, a, a holy biography kind of a thing. So you talk about all the good things of this person. Um, so, for instance, um, though, you know, remember the, 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 the episode of George Washington cutting down the, the cherry tree and his dad getting upset mm -hmm. and him saying, I can't tell a lie and yes, I, I cut up. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was nothing but a very smart marketing campaign. Never happened. It really was the advertising slogan for these throat lozenges that were invented in like the 19th century, you know, 1800 sometime. And they, they come up with a story about Washington and the cherry tree. So not only is it totally fictitious, but it's a hagiography. This is, you know, something sterling shown about Washington. No warts, no ugly, no nothing going on, right? So here's the thing. If, if Scripture were man-made... If, if the Holy Spirit wasn't involved, you think you'd ever heard of Bathsheba? No. Bathsheba? Uh, you know, Uriah's wife, Uriah whom David killed. You know, if Scripture was a hagiography of telling about people's lives, even the heroes of Scripture, without warts and stuff, well then you'd suspect that maybe somebody, you know, um, was fudging the record, or just wanting to talk about good things. But God doesn't do that. I mean, God shows us all of it, warts and all. And so here Uzziah has gotten enough ink, and he gets toward the end of his life, and in verse 16, it says, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense at the altar of incense. <clears throat> no, that's a priestly function. Oh. He's going to go walk in to the temple and burn incense on the altar of incense. But, was, but Azariah the priest went in after him, and 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. Think of this. Now, the priests, all they have to guard them are the Levites. The king has the army. So for them, and this is Uzziah in his strength. Uzziah in his strength is going to come into the temple and say, what is Uzziah doing? He's, well, you'll see. But um, he's being very presumptive, right? And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. For out, Go out of the sanctuary, for you've done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord your God. So they are defending God, and they're helping, they're trying to help the king. They're saying, King, this is not your place. This is not given to you, king, to burn incense before God. That's given to the sons of of Aaron. Meaning that the priest and the king two separate roles in the economy of Israel. Now we have types of king priests. Moses was a type of king priest, but then in Moses' tenure he had Aaron. Right? David behaved as a king priest, and yet he had the priests functioning when he was king, right? So all we have is him taking the ark, you know, the, the whole, that whole timetable where he is 
Uh, he has the tabernacle of David, and he brings the ark in, and he's sacrificing, and he's dancing in an ephod. That's the, that's the closest David gets to anything on this order of presumption. And even when he moves the ark incorrectly, um, he repents and says, hey, look, we went back to Scripture. We figured out we're not supposed to do that. It's supposed to be carried. This thing had been not carried by the Levites long enough that the Levites had forgotten what they were supposed to do. Or at least they weren't valorous enough like these men in Uzziah's day that when David came up with this concoction of bringing the ark back just like they got rid of it or like the Philistines got rid of it, then none of the Levites said, no, 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 you're not supposed to put it on a cart. We're supposed to carry it. Okay? So that kind of gives you an example of, of how valorous these people are. And, uh, yeah, they're sticking their neck out. They're sticking their neck out, right? And so the king, we're in uh, verse 19, then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry, the priest leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And as <clears throat> Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly. And he himself hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. <laughs> it was like, yeah, get me out of here quick before I what? Die. Die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not a good deal. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king, king's household and governing the people of the land. So it was a, a noble end for an otherwise good king. But he presumed, because of what God was doing, that perhaps maybe now, you know, maybe he was the Messiah. And so he comes in to burn incense. Now, on the golden altar of incense, do you remember where the golden altar of incense was? In the, in the structure of the temple and tabernacle? You don't? You do? Wasn't it in front of the veil? Or was it in front of the veil? It was in front of the veil. So it sits in front of the veil in the holy place. Uh, in the temple and in the tabernacle, that's its position. In the real one in heaven, it's inside the Holy of Holies. It's a transition point. The way you get beyond the veil is you burn the incense. And incense is the the prayer of the saints. Yeah. And so, why this was a priestly function was is because the priest is mediating between God and man offering prayers for the people. Okay? You got it? So, Uzziah goes in and he goes, he's going to take this role on himself. He's going to behave as a priest. The priests say, no, that's appointed to Aaron. The writer of Hebrews is saying, the understanding of a king being a priest and taking that upon himself got this, got this guy excluded for the rest of his life. Got a black mark on his record that remained. A white mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a white mark, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I was whitewashing the story. Um, and uh, the writer of Hebrews, though, says, this priesthood of Aaron has come to an end. 
Messiah is the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's the king priest. Zechariah uh, chapter 6 and verse 12, this is Zechariah's prophecy, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. And that's a great Bible study. If you're you know, looking for a Bible study to do, look up the branch. There are all these, these four primary prophecies of the branch, and they have reference to, to Christ being the Son of God, to Christ being the Son of Man, to Christ being a servant, um, to Christ being a king. And they all relate to these prophecies of the branch. But this branch, he shall be a branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. He is going to be a priest on his throne. He's going to be a king priest. Now, what is the temple? Now? Now. Us. The living Us. stones built on the cornerstone. Yeah, the living stones built on the cornerstone. So, understand that in a very, very real sense, you are part of a kingdom. You're not part of a belief system, religion, organization kind of a thing. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That means that he is a king priest. That you have these functions, executive and sacerdotal, <laughs> executive and priestly, occupying the same person who is over the same body, which means that gives you the same responsibility. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are to execute authority of the kingdom because you're an ambassador for Christ. But as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are supposed to, well, John. 19. Actually, John 20. Wow, I just saw something new. So, John 20 and verse 19. The same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said so, he showed them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. And then Jesus said unto them, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. The ones you forgive are forgiven, and the ones that are not stick to that person. That, that is a, um, a delegated priestly authority to expiate sins. It's on the same level, and it disturbs the same manner of religious spirit as when Jesus looked at the paralytic that was brought to the roof, and he said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And all the good religious folk in the place said, 
Who can forgive sins but God? And so I get a reaction usually even within myself when I say, guess what? You can forgive sins that God will write off the book by the power of the Holy Spirit. Can, can we do that only when people are alive? Or how about if they messed up and then they die? If I was a Catholic, I'd answer that, but I'm not. <laughs> I would think in this life, sweetheart, when people die, um, what they have done in their body, both good and bad, is sealed to them. Is sealed to them. Um, this is powerful stuff. Now, as a side note, rabbit trail warning, right? Boom, 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 here comes the bunny. This section in, in John 19 that I just read to you is one of the proof texts used by those who, who claim the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second work of grace. And so part of this theology goes that the apostles received, or the disciples received, the Holy Spirit right here. When Jesus breathed on him, that was the outpouring in that fashion. That's, you know, being born again. They got born again right there, but then the day of Pentecost is the second work of grace, and then they, I guess, got born again again. Um, and then they received another unction from the Holy Spirit, and then they spoke in tongues, and this is part of it. There's a problem with that, and that is that that means... If, if you, I don't think that holds water, but if you did, you've got a missing apostle. Thomas wasn't even there. So, you know, Jesus is breathing Holy Spirit out on everybody, and and one of his twelve's not even there. I, I, I'm not... I mean, it's, it's very clear to me, if, as you read through the Gospels, that Jesus was teaching them about what was going to happen later on when the Holy Spirit came. It wasn't right then. Yeah. Is, is what they were to do. And but if you look at it in that light, it's, mm -hmm. it, and read it all fits. It, and read it, you'll understand, you'll, I see that very clearly. Mm -hmm. Not because somebody taught me that, but because I can see it. You see it in Scripture. So, he breathed in, as what the Greek is, and, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So, you are part of the administration of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And as the administrators and executors of the kingdom of heaven, you have um, the, the anointing from the Holy Spirit to forgive sins, and you have the anointing from the Holy Spirit to impart justice, punish sins. This is what blindness to Barabbas is. This is what death to an Ananias and Sapphira is. This, this, is, this is the authority of the saint in Christ. Why? Because he's a king priest. And, and really, Christianity, by and large, Christianity focuses on Jesus being a dead lamb. I mean, we don't even get to priest. Yeah, or dead on the cross. We, yeah. we, we, we get to sacrifice. We stay at sacrifice. We stay at the... I say we. I mean, in terms of the body of Christ, what the body of Christ globally and for the past centuries seems to have focused on primarily is Christ is sacrifice. Understandable. Without that sacrifice, we have none of this. But 
it is it's not you know I I've, I've counted all things but you know cow poopy uh, except that I might know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings and no the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings he's he's the king priest and and then as we grow in uh, in the Lord if you if you get beyond um, you know what's what's uh, generally classified as a seeker sensitive church, a good friend of mine refers to them as a good starter church. It was a good starter church, you know. Great, it's a great you know it's a great place and people coming to Jesus, getting basic uh, discipleship instruction. But the focus of the entire organization is to is to reach out to, touch and speak to people who are. Um, completely lost, have no point of reference, have no point of reference in Scripture, have no point of reference to life in Christ, and so everybody um, makes it their means and their fellowship to uh, attract and and draw in um, through various means, you know, it, 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 to, to, to bring in the seeker. And so here's that, here's that focus on, on the sacrifice, the the great evangelistic crusades and the focus on the sacrifice, but eventually, at some point, you you walk in discipleship, and so here we are in discipleship. But then, generally speaking, those who are walking in discipleship have a a a major foundation on the sacrifice of Christ, and then his role as a priest. Um, primarily with regard to the sacrifice. So, his application of the blood and not the result of it. Does that make sense? That, that his, you know, so we, we grow in fellowship. And, and how do we grow in fellowship? Well, we're forgiven. And, and so, a, a good gospel of John and a good epistle of John and, and I have an advocate with the Father. I have an advocate with the Father. I have an advocate with the Father, which is really what I'm saying is, I know I've sinned and and I, I've got to go and ask for forgiveness. I got to go, and we should. But there's this continual focus on going to ask for forgiveness instead of living in victory. We're focusing on the priest's function to get you back into the community of faith, the congregation, by by making you clean. You were unclean. Now the priest has made you clean, and we haven't gotten to, we haven't gotten to the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you. The Lord lift His countenance upon you and grant you peace. We haven't gotten to this blessing part of the priesthood of Christ that releases you in a face-to-face -face with God, with the Father, who enhances grace and blessing and fruitfulness to your life. Oh, oh, and what's attendant to that fruitfulness? Subdue and have dominion. So, if we're not stuck at just the sacrifice part, where um, all of our iconography and all of our adoration involves the cross, and I'm not denigrating the cross, but from the crucifixes of the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, to the crosses of evangelism, uh, the cross, the cross, the cross, to the shepherd, uh, to um, 
this priestly function, but really one that is continually involved with this treadmill of sin that we appear to be on. And not, if we get to priesthood, how much of the blessing have we believed? How much of Him putting His name on us? That's what number six is about. Such shall you put my name on my people. To get to this place. This is Christ interceding for you in the power of an endless life. Which means that there hasn't been a moment in time you have lived that He hasn't been broadcasting blessing and grace on you. <laughs> I mean, did I tell you? Did I tell you this was kind of we're stretching everything, stretching everything, stretching everything? Because we don't walk by sight but by faith, right? So that our focus can be on heaven, so our perspective can be heavenly, God's perspective. God's perspective of this priest is that he is a king on his throne. He's a king. You're not a victim. You're an ambassador of the victor. Amen. Amen? So what we see transpiring and yeah. He's given us power and authority to use. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and according to his word. Faithful men and women who have believed in Christ's kingly function have changed the course of human history time and time and time and time again. Overturned empires. So ours is not a hopeless weight of the world going to hell in a handbasket while we sit on our hands and look at the insane. Ours is the binding of spirits of insanity. Ours is the blessing of peace in place. Ours is the denunciation of lawlessness to bring the law and order of Jesus Christ. Because our priest sits on the mercy seat, a king. It's good news, isn't it? This stuff is just so exciting. He is going to be a priest on his throne and bring peace between the two. The council of peace shall be between the twain. In other words, there's no... Look, American government is designed at its base to be inefficient. That's its point. One primary point of our system of government and, and the balance of powers is to make it as difficult as possible to impose generally binding rules on a populace and thus avoid tyranny. Dictatorships are very efficient. Monarchies are hugely efficient. They're getting what they want done, but Absolutely. what they want done is not always a godly, not always godly. Usually it's not. So, so this, you know, we don't have a priest role in government, right? Um, uh, closest we get to, closest we get to it in, in, uh, in American government in terms, well, I mean, we got it divided between the legislature and the judicial, basically. But there's not, there's not peace between the three branches of government in that sense, right? There are, there are differing interests. You see this lack of peace between the two and Uzziah and the priests. When Uzziah goes to, they say, no, no, you, you're, you're, you are intruding into areas of authority. You have no right. Well, not, not so much now. 
He has every right. He's the king priest. So do you get a sense now that's just one step of the radical um, newness of this new covenant? The old covenant mediated by a priestly caste that is generational, hereditary, handed down, father to son, father to son, father to son. Hereditary, why? Because daddies die. And sons mess up. A son messes up and takes the Ark of the Covenant out to battle. And they get killed in battle and lose the Ark of the Covenant. And the dad hears about it, has a heart attack, and he's so fat he falls off the chair and breaks his neck. Or maybe even from the start, sons mess up and they go, oh, hey, we're sons of Aaron. We can just go in there. We're going to worship God here. Start a fire. And we'll go in there and boom, they're dead. So you need, you know, because they don't. He serves in the power of an endless life. An endless life. I better get on to the teaching. This no, is pretty yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Praise God. Yeah, he learned. See, he's the forever priest. And Psalm 110 says, The Lord has sworn and has not changed his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When, when Jesus said, you know, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself, speaking this he spake of the matter of death he should have. Then the crowd said, well, wait a minute. We heard in the law that Messiah lasts forever. How, how can you say the Son of Man is going to be lifted up? Who's the Son of Man? We thought Son of Man was the Messiah, but obviously it can't be because the Messiah lives forever. Where'd they get that? 110th Psalm. Which was viewed uh, for centuries as a messianic psalm. And he's a priest forever. If he's a priest forever, he can't die. Think about how entrenched this is. Jesus told his disciples. He told his twelve. He told his three. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried for three days. And I'm going to... And it wasn't until he was resurrected and opened their minds that they went, Oh! Oh, that's what you meant. I mean, they lived through the whole experience and didn't get it. That's how difficult it was to see once the theology was set. How can the Son of Man? But He did. And then He was resurrected. And now He serves the power of an endless life. So, um, Andrew Murray says that this this dropping of Melchizedek into this epistle is, is just further evidence of the divine authorship and unity of Scripture. So I, I, I just want you to get a, a grasp of kind of the scale. I mean, we talk about Melchizedek, and, and you think, we're, I mean, we're talking about, hey, Melchizedek, this has got to be like, what, I don't know, five, six chapters in Scripture. You know, every other prophet must be talking about this guy, right? <laughs> so, Melchizedek and Abram. It's Genesis 14. We're going to read it. But this happened somewhere around 2,090 years before Christ is when Melchizedek goes out to war, or, or Abram goes out to war and comes back and meets the king of Salem. Salem being short, uh, shorthand for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the Jebusite city that everyone said no one could take. 
and David did. Um, David composes the 110th Psalm, possibly as a celebratory psalm for the enthronement of Solomon. Solomon, the quote-unquote king of peace, um, Solomon the one that God chose for him to take the throne, and it's possible he he composed that psalm somewhere around 1440 B.C. And he mentions, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's roughly a thousand years after the incident. A thousand years go by. A thousand years go by. Okay? 650 or so, maybe more. Let me see, I wrote that down. Uh, from the time that Moses wrote it down. So, um, I did the math earlier. I, I just, that scale in and of itself, right? Um, hey, Nick. Yeah. Are you saying it was a thousand years, of, okay, so from Melchizedek and Abraham, then to David, that was a thousand years in between? I, Roughly, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you got to work them backwards. Yeah, no, it's really hard to go backwards. Yeah, um, let me show you the right ones here. So, <laughs> you know what? I got a typo. That's the typo right there. The 1440 is a typo. 970 is the correct date there. Not 1440, but 970. So this this 1440 here, the, the 110th Psalm, I can see where the math is getting confusing because I got the wrong number there. <laughs> that, that 1440 is actually 970. Okay, but is it, you're saying that's still roughly a thousand roughly years? Roughly a thousand years, yeah. In between, okay. Yeah, roughly a thousand. Because we don't know exactly when that happened, but somewhere around that time. So a thousand years from 2090 is 1090. So, so when I read Abraham in Genesis, uh -huh. right? I never, I, I don't know, but I, I miss the age, the time. Yeah. How, how is that? It's because he's alive to us. Because scripture is alive to us. Right. But it, it's it's millennia ago. <laughs> yeah. But um so so of all the times though, um the so like where is the Mount the scriptures on Melchizedek? We're 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 looking at all of them. Okay. <laughs> Pretty much. So um i to make a note so I could not confuse anybody else. Should I use this slide so again? I'm glad you're like, really like, bringing this up. Yeah. It's a question I've had for a long time. So um, Moses start. Moses essentially records it uh, about 650 years after the event. But David's writing about it in, in like I said, somewhere around 970. And I'll fix that. But Roughly a thousand years. A thousand years after the event, David writes about it. Okay? And then, the writer of Hebrews... Hebrews is written before 70 AD. The reason why um, we know this is because he writes as if the temple is ongoing and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So, somewhere in that 40 to 70 AD time frame is when the Epistle to the Hebrews was written, which means that it was roughly a thousand years after the 110th Psalm. 
You, know, you run into Melchizedek again when you get into the book of Hebrews. <laughs> you run into Melchizedek in Genesis. You run into Melchizedek again in Psalm. And then you run into Melchizedek again in Hebrews. And we're not talking about a rope through Scripture. We're talking about a little bit. We're talking about a little bit that the Holy Spirit kind of put in there and then He wove it and tied the whole thing together and into a type and a prophecy and a fulfillment by Jesus of Christ. I remember you said to you that God always has patterns. Mm -hmm. And so, like, there was the pattern of, like, like every thousand years he gets an itch and he's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like, so, just roughly a thousand years, yeah, yeah. there's an itch there, and it's like, oh, I just got to do something now. Something about millennials with, with, oh, the, yeah. with the Lord. So, um, Hebrews 7 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. He's returning from the slaughter of the kings and he blessed him. So, in the reference in Hebrews, what's the first priestly function you see this king priest functioning, doing? He's blessing. He's blessing. He's blessing someone who just came back from a battlefield where he killed a whole lot of people. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you get too excited about that, right? <laughs> you know, I just think of the favor of God that God, favor that God has placed upon me throughout my life with different people and with him of course mm -hmm. and, and and that's a blessing but then there's the other side of the coin that there's people that that he hasn't placed any favor upon that but they're they are they weren't they weren't called or whatever they weren't part of his plan of salvation or through their years or whatever they were on the other side of the coin and they got wiped out yeah, not being on the, not being in, in God's blessing plan is a horrible place to be. So let's go to Genesis 14 and and get a context for the appearance of Melchizedek. <clears throat> in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, and Chadalamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bidersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, and all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shadalomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. <clears throat> so, okay, another rabbit trail, no bunny tail. It's, this is a, like a small thread, but one of the, you know, one of the keys to interpreting scripture, understanding symbolism, is the symbol of numbers. So twelve is governance, right? Twelve tribes, twelve apostles, twenty-four elders. Twelve is is order, okay? Um, Thirteen is rebellion. 12 plus 1. You went beyond order. In the 13th year, they rebelled. Okay? <clears throat> In the 14th year, 
Shadalomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Riphaim and Asherah's Karnei and the Zunim and Ham and the Emim and, and uh, Shaveh Kiriathim. So uh, there's a lot going on here. Abraham is in Canaan and these, these kings and Shadalomer, who is the king of Elam, this is the only one that I can actually give you a, 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 easily give you a handle. Elam is Persia. Persia is Iran. Okay? So this is the southern, what we call the southern part of Iran, where it borders on what we call Iraq. I mean, these borders that we've drawn are, are, are fairly arbitrary, but this is Elam is Persia, okay? And this Persian king is being used of the Lord to get rid of the Rephaim. Rephaim or Nephilim, mm -hmm. okay? A, ne a Nephilim, a, a Rephaim is the same as a Nephilim, as, as, a, um, as an Amalekite. You know, sons of so these people groups that they are wiping out are are bad people groups in Canaan. You know, basically uh, Nephilim that need to be out of the land, kind of a thing, which marks this rebellion of Sodom and Gomorrah is not that good of a thing anyway. But that I digress to a degree. So just just so you know that reading Genesis can be really exciting if you just dive into it. You know, don't let the names throw you. Get a map, get a concordance, whatever, and just take it a bite at a time. But I should just keep reading. <clears throat> and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Param to the border of the wilderness, and they returned back and came to En Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that were dwelling in Hazaz Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined in battle in the valley of Siddim with Shalomer, king of Elam, and, and Tidal, king of Goyim, and Ephraim, Shinar, and Ariah, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So they're, yeah, they're tar pits. Yeah, so they're having this fight, <laughs> you know, down there by the Dead Sea, and you have all, you know, you have these. Anyhow, yeah, background, right? And and they get routed and they start falling into this place and and so um, can you stop and think about that? If you were really there, my goodness, what a yeah, what a uh, horrendous. Yeah, it's, it's horrific. Now in in ancient warfare, most of the killing happened in the route. So what would happen is the armies would come and oppose, and you'd have this clash, and you have frontal clash until one or the other gave way. And it's when you gave way that it got horrible because when you gave way and turned back, then it just became a churn as, as, the, as the chasing army chased you down. And that, that's hugely reductionist, but that's the basic principle of, um, of warfare. Uh, if you're not doing a fighting retreat, which is very difficult to do and pull off, the logistics on a fighting retreat are, are, are hugely complex. If it's a route, you'll lose more in the route than you did in the battle. Think about that for a second. Yeah, because Principle nobody, of warfare. Yeah, because yeah. nobody's standing together. I mean, everybody's for yeah. every man for themselves. Yeah. They're learning, it's, learning scared. It's just all, it, it just all goes bad. So, it all went bad. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Now remember, Sodom and Gomorrah at this time was like, like Eden. You know, it was so lush, and so, and agriculture is the economy. So these are rich cities. Matter of fact, the primary sin that God really got on Sodom for was neglecting the poor. That much produce, they shouldn't have had starving people. 
And they took all, and they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom in his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now, Abram the Hebrew. He's called the Hebrew because of Eber. And Eber, we're talking scales here. I've got to go back to my scales. So, okay. so I just... That's a different one. Just, no, no, no. Abraham, he just has a better name. Yeah, Abraham is, Abram is, is Abraham yes, before God name. gave him the, okay. um, the Abraham name. And... Uh, Got to find my right file here. I I went in the wayback machine, so there it is. Okay, so you have Shem, okay, Arphaxad, Selah, Eber. So Eber is three generations down from Shem. He's third generation off the boat. Okay, remember Shem was on the boat with Noah. Mm -hmm. So. Arphaxad is born to Shem when Shem's 100 years old. And then Eber is, is some 75 years later. So from Eber, you have Peleg, Rev, Serug, Nahor, Terah, Abraham. So from Eber to Abraham, six generations. Okay? He's Abraham the Hebrew. That comes from Eber. Okay? Eber outlives Abraham by 10, 20, 30, a long time. Eber's still alive. He dies, at, uh, he dies at the age of 464, I think. And, and so he, he outlives Abraham by quite a bit. Which, you know, doesn't... I mean, it's interesting, right? Here's the thing. When Abraham dies, Shem is 565 years old, thereabout. So this thing about the global flood and Noah and Shem, Japheth, and, and Ham coming off the boat, this is not myth to Abraham. Shem is still alive. As a matter of fact, um, Shem out, outlives Abraham by uh, another 40-some-odd years. Shem, Shem dies at 600. So Shem's alive during the entire lifetime of Abraham. Give you some perspective. So that's, that's Abraham the Hebrew, okay? Abram the Hebrew, okay? I just shared that because I thought it was interesting. <laughs> And the reason for the longevity is because the rate of mutation in the genetic code wasn't as high. Aging, aging is, aging in the human body is a metabolic um, collapse. So, but but scripturally, um, and, and then by the time you by the time you get to Moses' psalm about if a man just lives to seventy years, well then great, it gets more than fantastic. But the lifespan of humankind has been degrading since the casting out of the garden because sin, yeah. and, and then because of that sin being hardwired into the genetic code with iniquity and sin, that there's a degradation. And, and eventually, 
this combination of DNA that we got from the ground, from, from mitochondria, mitochondria begins to die off and then all kinds of systems begin to crash and we just call that aging. So you have maturing, which is getting older, and, and everything is, seems to be the green of life, um, and, but then you get to this apex and it begins to degrade down. But these years are years, so these, these patriarchs lived centuries. Sarah at 90, Sarah at 90 was good looking enough for Pharaoh to abduct her. I think it's a matter of, of adolescence or maturation taking, um, taking longer uh, because uh, gestation didn't take longer. Children were still being born inside that regular, the regular time of life. You know, God told Sarah on the regular time of life, and so children are still being born in the regular time of life, but even in a regular gestation period of natural maturation, longevity was more. So I think it was a case of aging not setting in until much later in life. Um, so, and you have, you have vestiges of that. I know we make a lot of Caleb, but I, I think that, that um, um, I, don't, I don't expect, it'd be nice, but I don't expect to be as robust as Caleb was at 80. So a lot of that's conjecture, but a lot of that, from my point of view, is just, just simply following it through. You know, days are days and years are years, and, and, and the, the point of it is, is that we can trust Scripture. We can trust the testimony of Scripture because it's not, you know, Moses is receiving this through the Holy Spirit, but he's not, he's not, he's not writing down history that is a handed-down oral tradition of some myth. You know, a Abraham, when they said that's Abraham the Hebrew, you know, e Eber is not, not that many generations back. And he's a, he's a Semite. Shem, Semite, you know. Shem, the progenitor of the Semites, is still alive. <laughs> yeah. I, to me, that's just like... Ah. Yeah, it is. It's really mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. I think it's exciting. You know? So, and man, I'm just throwing it in this night. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about today except for the fact it's really cool. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Anyhow, they take him, verse, verse 12, And the one who had escaped came, told Abram the Hebrew, that's where we were, that, who was living the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went and pursued as far as Dan, and divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Horah, north of Damascus. The whole thing about this, from a, a military aspect in, in Abraham's organization, of, of the, at Horeb, not at Horeb, at um, uh, Haran, you know, when he, when he went to buy a cave at Haran, they said, you're a mighty prince among us. Name the ground, it's yours. Abram was a, a ruler, a sheik, a king, a prince. He had an armed, retaining contingent that was born in his house that he trained. They went, now you've got five kings went against four kings. They rebelled. Four kings came down and routed these five kings. Abraham takes 13, 318 special forces on a night maneuver and outroutes the routers and takes everything back. That's like, ah. On a night maneuver with Stone Age weapons. <laughs> we don't pull off night maneuvers without like a whole lot of tech and a, and a, and a logistical training that's, 
that boggles the mind in modern warfare. Matter of fact, let me, let me back up a few steps. You know where we've gotten really kicked in, 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 in modern warfare? Is in night maneuvers. You know who was really good at night maneuvers? The Japanese were excellent at night maneuvers. They cleaned our clock for two, three years in the Pacific because they were fantastic night fighters. The Chinese and North Koreans as well. So just think about that for a second. In modern warfare terms, and then what, what Abraham did and what he pulled off, obviously the Lord's with him, okay? But that takes nothing away from his organization as a king. I, I get upset at dramatic representations that show Abraham as some sort of a bungling shepherd that, you know, trips across an army and all of a sudden something happens. <laughs> you know, we, we expect, we expect to, to um, somehow be able to lay aside responsibility for discipline for the magic of the Lord's grace. The Lord's grace is grace, it's favor, but it's not magic, you know. The, um, Daniel and the children of Israel did great in school, but not because they didn't study and God gave them some magic dust to make them understand, because God gave them grace and they applied themselves and then they prospered better than, than their classmates. Okay? That's divine understanding. That's Anyhow, all so right. they go all the way to Damascus, right? So verse, uh, verse 16, then he, brought all, then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot and all his possessions and the women and the people. So he got it all back. And after his return from the, the feet of Shadalomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. So Melchizedek is a new player in this whole, this whole thing going on, but it's going on in his, you know, look at a map, Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. It's not that far away. There's a huge thing going on down there. And so he comes out in this return, and he brings, what does he bring? Bread and wine. Right? <clears throat> and he blesses him. And he says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Like I said, it's not absent of the grace of God. It's not absent of God being with him. This is evidence of God being with him, that he, that he pulled this off. Note the order of events. Abraham comes back. He has set the captives free. The king of peace, the king of righteousness, approaches him and blesses him. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, the message of, I would say, the tortured message of tithe is, if you tithe, God will bless you. No. God has blessed me, therefore I tithe. God has blessed me, therefore I tithe. It's a response to His blessing. How do you know God blessed you? Did you eat yesterday? You see, blessed be, what did He say? Abram, by God most high, and then, how does He signify? God most high. I think King James is creator of heaven and earth, right? You have a King James there? So this isn't King James, it says creator. It says creator? Mm -hmm. Which one's that? The NLT. The NLT, okay, yeah. And then um, Genesis, in the ESV, it says possessor, it's the creator. So, just so, so everyone's clear, the God that Melchizedek represents is the most high God, creator of the heavens and the earth. 24th Psalm, verse 1. 
is that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And all the inhabitants of the world, basically, that's a paraphrase, right? It's God's planet. Yeah. In other words, Abraham, everything you just got was God's already. So then Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoil. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Uh, let Aner, Esco, and Mamre take their share. So he took 318 of his men, then he had his, his allies. So it wasn't just a force of 318. There's a coordinated effort between, you know, three prominent men in this area, and they go and take care of this. So when, when the king of Sodom says, you can have all my goods, Abraham's taken a tenth of, of what he gained back, gave that to God. He takes nothing but the food that people ate. Okay? This is the encounter. This is the singular encounter, these three little verses in Genesis 14, that all of this hangs on. This is why... Andrew Murray says this is just further evidence of the divine authorship of Scripture and the unity of the witness of God. That this king comes out of nowhere. He has no history. There is no genealogy. He shows up with bread and wine. He blesses Abram. And then as we go into Hebrews 7, this begins to get developed. So I won't, um, I won't go at length here. But he, Abram gave him a, a portion, a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. A tenth of everything, apart for the whole. Now apart for the whole, the kingdom of God is much wider than the community of faith understands. So we're all about exclusion. You know, um, uh, we are believers, they are unbelievers. Um, we are Jews. They are goyim. Um, we, I mean, all these, and then even within uh, any structured religion, there are the DM group and the out group. You know, well, who who gave counsel to Moses? Well, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And, and so what's happening in the history of redemption is God is drawing a family close that he can expand the revelation. Yeah, I can see that. But Abram, Abram wasn't the only monotheistic believer. His, his father, yeah. you know. So, and, and then here you have, and then you have Noah and Shem. And so, you know, you have this, you have all these different witnesses, but God is beginning to specify his blessing and the coming of Messiah. And this is what the history of redemption is, is this continual specification of what Messiah will do to fulfill righteousness. And you can't understand what it requires to fulfill righteousness until you get an understanding of what the offense is. And so to specify the offense, we have to give the law. And then the law makes it unequivocal. There's no way you can arrive to God's holiness without this intermediary. You can't get there. Oh, you, you want to get there? Let me show you how to get there. Just do all of this. Not, not one part of it really good. Do all of it. Because if you mess up on one point of it, you're lost forever. Right? 
So um, this this part for the whole, as I was thinking about this, all these principles of, of um, sowing and reaping, of the plant being in the seed, but the seed being in the plant, uh, that, that the firstborn belongs to God, but that God gives the whole tribe for the firstborn. This, this entire um, identifying principle, this part for the whole, is something that you can just meditate on all the time. I, I, I wrote a note to myself that it's really something that just requires meditation and contemplation more than definition and specification. This is something that you just, you just meditate on and feel the heart of God on to let Him expand your understanding on. Because it's not, I'm going to put some points on the board, but it's not about points on the board. It's about, it's about God's character and nature. That the blessing is in the part to the whole and from the whole to the part. That this, this whole representative thing is there and He has it all so intertwined that it's, it's, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to ferret it out. That he is just he's just hidden himself in plain view just to have the fun of us going on the treasure hunt to see how glorious he is. This is one little thread in Melchizedek. Three little verses on the end of a campaign. This guy shows up on the scene and he is a type of Christ in a dramatic way that overhauls the entire economy of God. The entire economy of God's chosen people, the entire structure of the worship by a replacement of priesthood. It's that astronomical. It's, 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 uh, so apart from the whole, one-tenth, one-tenth symbolically identifies with ten. It's one-tenth. So again, apart from the whole. It's a death. God works on a decimal system. Well, that's not the only system He works on, but He does do binaries too, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> So 10. Well, what is 10? 10 is the number of law, order, government, and restoration. Well, where do we get that 10 is the number of law? How many commandments? 10. 10 commandments. Okay. So, first mentioned principle in hermeneutics. So where does 10 get its significance? Well, it gets its significance because God said 10 times in Genesis 1. And God said... And God said, is the restoration, is the restoration of the destruction of the first heaven and earth. And in that restoration, He brings blessing and He brings fruitfulness and the seed being in it and to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion so that we're all the way to the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I don't give to God for blessing, I acknowledge God's blessing in my gift. This, this meditation goes back and forth all the time. God says, I delivered you from Egypt. I killed and slayed all the firstborn. All the firstborn of the cattle. All the firstborn of, of, of the people. So guess what? I didn't kill yours, which means what? They all belong to me. All the firstborn belong to me. But, I won't take and have you humanly sacrifice all your firstborn babies, boys. I'll take all your firstborn male animals. And then you take silver and you pay a tax at the temple for your life. And then I'll take an entire tribe to represent all these firstborn. 
This is what makes it legal and legitimate. This is, the, this is the expression of the character of God. This is how God works. And we think, oh, how horrific. Every time firstborn's done, I'm reminded he doesn't belong to me because I have to redeem him. And, and every time my, my you um, has, has, a, has a lamb the first time, a male lamb, I have to take that lamb and then I have to go sacrifice that at the temple. Well, what did God do? God took His only begotten. See, God said, I'll take the firstborn for all of everybody. And then I'll give my firstborn, my only one, for everybody. Part for the whole. Part for the whole. Part for the whole. This is the principle. This is, this is why tithing is not a law, but a principle in that sense. What's the difference? Well, I'm not going to get arrested for not tithing. Neither will I get arrested for jumping off my roof. But guess what? If I don't tithe, the principle still works. And if I jump off my roof, so does gravity. <laughs> so, it, it's... Now, that's just a starting block. His response to being blessed was to honor God with a tenth of all He had gained. Okay? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and those that dwell therein. Psalm 24.1 So, this principle that your gain or what, what you gain from risk is equivalent to life. There's this uh, account of the three mighty men of, of David. And these three mighty men heard David say, Oh, I wish I could just have a drink of water from that sweet well in Bethlehem. And these three guys broke through the Philistine line, got a full canteen of water for their king, and brought it back. Just because they heard him say, boy, it'd be nice to have a drink from that well. And so they, they're all excited. I mean, think about that. They go in, they break through the line, arm camp, get the water, they bring it back. Risk their lives. Yeah. Risk their lives. They risk their lives. And David said, I can't drink this. I'd just as soon drink your blood. You risked your blood for this. So he took this water and he poured it out to the Lord. And he poured it out. And I know I've gone long. I just want to read you this quote from, uh, from J.H. Quirtz. And this is uh, uh, from, from this offerings, sacrifices, worship in the Old Testament. So theological treatise written in like 1860. Okay? But... Um, he says, The God whom the Israelite had recognized as the creator of heaven and earth could not possibly desire the offering of earthly blessings for their own sake. He could not care about the gift, but only about the giver. That is to say, about the feelings of which the gift was the expression and embodiment. Hence, the possession which the worshiper gave up was the representative of his person, his heart, and his emotions. And these gifts, which were his justly acquired property, gained by the sweat of his face and the exercise of his earthly calling, he offered in a certain sense as an objective portion of himself, since the sweat of his own labor adhered to it, and he had expended his own vital energy upon it, and thereby, as it were, really given it life. It is not insignificant. When you honor God in gifts and offerings, it is not insignificant because... What are you offering? If done in the right manner and done in the right heart, what you're offering 
is that thing which you expended your life on. And so therefore, it is representative of your life. And therefore, God honors it as such because He is just. Amen? So Abram gave a tenth of all he gained. And then it says, And to him Abram apportioned a tenth of everything. <clears throat> By translation, his name, King of Righteousness. That's Mel Kizedek. Mel is king. Sikenu is righteousness. Okay? So he's king of righteousness. And then king of Salem. Salem is shalom, peace. So he is the king of peace. And he's the king of righteousness. Uh, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, continues a priest forever. What God decided not to put in Scripture is as much of the divine plan as what He decided to include. He could have told you who Melchizedek was. He could have told you his entire genealogy. But He intentionally, a thousand some odd years you know, before, He's further recorded in the Scripture, brings him on stage ostensibly out of nowhere. He's not even part of either um, alliance or affiliation. This Jebusite king who worships the Most High God and serves as his priest comes out and blesses Abraham and the writer of Hebrews says, consider for a second that the lesser is blessed by the greater. That Abram, as huge as he is, Melchizedek, by his position, was greater. And he was the antitype to Christ, who is the type, the King of Righteousness. He is the fulfillment of Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our Righteousness. He is the fulfillment of Yahweh Shalom, the Lord our Peace. He is the King of Righteousness. He is the King of Peace. Is Jesus Christ. So that is our start, our launch, our beginning into what the writer of Hebrews wanted to get to all along. <laughs> Amen. Amen.